You are now listening to the March 25th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministry listeners. This is Terry with Psalm, This Is My Song. Is there anyone who has ever pondered these questions? Does God really love me? Never mind loving me, does he even know me? Have you ever thought how God, who is great beyond our comprehension, would be happy with someone like me? I am insignificant and have little to show for. I do not even have strong faith. I have not served God that well. At the same time, have you ever thought that God remember more, those pastors from large churches and faithful elders and senior deacons and deaconesses, but would not remember a mere churchgoer like me? It is understandable why some of us might think that way. From a human perspective, we see others in the world that have more power, like CEOs of large companies, well-known celebrities with lots of money, and those people around us that seem really smart and carry themselves well. They seem more capable and are more successful and popular than we could ever be. That is why some of us might think that people like that could also be in more demand, even in heaven. If we were to extend this line of thinking further, some of us may feel that Jesus died on the cross for those that are more important and faithful. And perhaps someone like me happened to receive his grace by love. Sometimes some of us feel like the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 who was compared to a dog. Sometimes we might degrade ourselves to a dog under the table waiting for the master to drop a piece of bread. It is okay that Christians should be humble. This is because God opposes and hates the prideful. But it is something else to be self-degrading or self-loathing. We must distinguish between these two. Putting oneself above our limits is being prideful, but lowering oneself below our ability is being self-degrading. Being humble is understanding oneself and acting accordingly. If there are any of you who are in the habit of downgrading or loathing yourself, there is a beautiful psalm that will change such tendencies. It is Psalm 147. Do you know how many stars are in the sky? According to astronomers, the number of stars in the universe cannot be expressed in a simple way. Their best estimation is approximately 7 trillion to 10 billion power. Would you have a feel for how big that number is? For most of us, that number is beyond our comprehension. So we try to compare it to things around us like grains of sand. According to some scholars, the number of stars is more than 10 times the number of all the grains of sand on Earth, at places like deserts and seashores. Still, it is difficult to fathom how big that number is. Would the number of people who have ever lived in human history be more than the stars in the sky? No. The evolutionist scholars who do not believe in God once tried to calculate the number of people throughout humanity starting from 50,000 years ago to the present, and they came up with the number of 107 billion. That is ruefully lower than the number of stars in the 7 trillion to 10 billion power. It is clear humans are not able to count the number of stars. Then the Bible talks about the number of stars in reference to God. Who do you think God is in the context of such unimaginable number of stars? Psalm 147 verses 4 and 5 gives us a clear response. He counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. 
These verses tell us that God counts the stars that are uncountable by humans. Not only that, God knows the names of all those stars and calls them by their names. This realization should give us a new perspective on how we think about the way God would interact with us. To start, would God not know each and every one of us whom He has made in His own image when He knows the name of each and every star in the sky? Psalm 147 tells us that God knows us and He would know us by our names. So, let us cast out the thought that God might ever not remember someone like me. Yet, perhaps some of us might still think, even if God knows someone like me, there are still more people who are better and more successful than me, and God will like them more than me. For anyone who might think this way, Psalm 147 verse 10 offers us a different perspective. It says, He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. That's right. This verse tells us that God does not delight in someone because he or she is more powerful or more successful than others. Then, what kind of person would God favor? The next verse, Psalm 147 verse 11, tells us that the Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. God does not delight in a person because he or she is powerful, smarter, or successful. The person that God delights in is someone that fears him and one that longs for God's loving kindness. So, do not be discouraged. Do not worry that God would take notice of us either. God knows us, and he will be delighted when we fear him and long for his loving kindness. I hope we will be able to enjoy the joy of true salvation as Christians, chosen by God and known by God. Let us end today's episode of Psalm, This Is My Song, by reading Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. The Lord supports the afflicted. He brings down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre. Who covers the heavens with clouds. Who provides rain for the earth. Who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food. And to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors those who fear him those who wait for his loving kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments, who can stand before his cold? He sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. I was lost.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, You Need Biblical Accountability and Discipline. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. To be a Christian is to invite the gentle, wise, loving, good discipline of God in our lives. This is Hebrews chapter 12, straight from God's mouth. Look at it with me, starting in verse 3. Consider him, this is talking about Jesus who endured 
from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And thus sets the stage for the rest of the verses in this part of Hebrews 12 to revolve around what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. If you don't have discipline in your life, you're not a child of God. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Who of us doesn't want the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives and in the church? Well, that comes through what? Discipline. From God our Father who cares about us. This is for our good. So much that he will pull us away from sin and help us grow in holiness. Did you see that phrase? That we may share his holiness, share the holiness of God. So how does God discipline us then? And the Bible talks about different ways God disciplines us, but one of the primary ways is through his church. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where God tells the church, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So God has designed the church to help restore each other when we are caught in sin. So let's just, let's just meditate on this verse for a minute. Just soak in like every word. So brothers... And the picture here is family. This is not fundamentally about organizational and all practices and policies. This is brothers and sisters loving each other like family, walking alongside each other in life, not just confronting each other in sin, but caring for each other and encouraging each other and building each other up. That's what family does, build each other up. So family, if anyone is caught, and the word here basically means trapped in sin. The, the picture here and in other places in the Bible is confronting someone who is continuing in sin, even when they're lovingly confronted about it. So this is not discipline for someone just because they have sinned or maybe even if they're wanting to or trying to turn from sin. This is someone who's caught, who's continuing in sin, not turning from it, when they're caught in, that's key word, transgression, 
What the Bible calls sin, this is not about confronting pet peeves in each other or things that we wish were different in each other. This is what is clearly sin or transgression according to the Bible. You who are spiritual, so don't do this in the flesh. Your character should savor of the fruit of the Spirit in this. You should exude love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Spiritual. You see that word gentleness later on. What a picture. I, I think of people I know who have experienced church discipline and instead of fearing, feeling cared for and loved, they feel called out and ostracized, which again can be challenging because even Hebrews 12 said that for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But God is going out of his way in the Bible here to say, yes, it's painful, it's hard, so do this with the gentleness of Jesus. And what do we do? We work to restore. That's the goal here. This is not about making someone pay for their sin. It's about restoring someone to closeness to Jesus and the church. The goal of accountability and discipline is restoration to Jesus. And you and I need a church, a family of brothers and sisters who will do this for us. So let me summarize this in a sentence that I hope represents what we're seeing in God's word here. That we need a church that will love us enough to lead us away from sin and toward Jesus. On a continual basis, like every day. We, we don't just need people to confront us when we're nearing or falling off a ledge. That's why I wanted you to clap for Solomon back here. We need people who are encouraging us daily in our relationships with Jesus. And then when we near the ledge, when we're caught in sin, Galatians 6, one, we're continuing in it, maybe even in a way we can't see, we need brothers and sisters who will lovingly help us turn from it. Did you know this is actually one of the first things Jesus ever taught us as the church? So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 18 with me. The very first time we see the church mentioned in the Bible is in Matthew 16, just two chapters before this where Jesus teaches that the church revolves around confessing him as Lord. It's a foundational teaching of Jesus on the church in Matthew 16. Then, two chapters later, the next time he mentions the church, it's only the second time he mentions it, listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. There it is. Second time he's even mentioned the church in the Bible. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So did you catch that? This is Jesus giving us very clear, specific instructions about what to do when a brother or sister 
in the church is continuing in sin. And this isn't number 100 on a list of 101 things Jesus says to do in the church. It's at the top of the list right after confessing him as Lord. Jesus outlines this process that we've talked about on multiple occasions before. Step one in the process, private correction. If your brother sins against you. Now, you may notice some of your Bibles have a small note that takes you to the bottom of the page where it says some manuscripts do not have the words against you. So this is one of the few places in the Bible where there's a bit of discrepancy in some of the earliest manuscripts we have. They're called variants. But like other small variants we see like this in Scripture, they don't affect any major teachings of the Bible, Christianity, and even in these passages, they're so small. Even, for example, in this, regardless of whether it's a sin that a brother has committed against you or not, we know Galatians 6.1 has made clear, if a brother or sister is caught in sin, period, then do this. Go to him between you and him alone. Go to that brother or sister in Christ to talk about this. Now, I should add the caveat here very important one, that if there is ever a situation in which you are in danger or that requires law enforcement in some ways, then involve appropriate authorities without question or hesitation. When that's not the case, then the picture here, Jesus says, go to a brother or sister in Christ, biblically gently as we've talked about, humbly. Think about Matthew chapter 7, Jesus saying, why do you look at the speck in someone else's eye when there's a plank in your own eye? First remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll be see clearly to help remove the speck from a brother's eye. Examine your own heart before the Lord. And then, in those rare situations where a person will not listen and receive loving, gentle, biblical correction and turn from sin, when that's not the case, Then step two, Jesus says, is small group clarification. Take one or two others along with you. Whole picture here, background in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where others would be witnesses to the truth of something. So you invite another believer or two who lovingly, biblically, gently, humbly go to that brother or sister to talk about what seems like unrepentant sin Involving others will help bring to the surface, is there actually unrepentant sin there? And if there is, then this small group of people will help clarify, brother or sister, you need to turn from this. But then, Jesus says, if, so if a brother or sister refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Step three, church admonition. And the picture now is, the body of Christ and leaders, pastors, elders who shepherd that body, encouraging someone to turn from sin. This is God saying to each of us, hear the the picture here from God, saying to you, if you, as my child, are caught in sin, I love you so much that I'll send my entire body and bride after you. I love you so much. I don't want you to be left in your sin. And then Jesus says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, as the church is calling someone back to Jesus, then go to step four, church exclusion. 
Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat them as like they are outside of the church, which obviously does not mean we stop loving them. After all, how are we supposed to treat people outside the church? With love and compassion. But Jesus says, if they're continuing unrepentant in sin and they refuse to turn from it to Jesus after all this, then don't acknowledge them anymore as a member of the body. And let's be honest, this last step is really hard to even understand. Like church exclusion? I thought the church was the place where everybody is included. So to say no, you're no longer a member of this church, that seems to go against everything we think, doesn't it? But this is what Jesus is saying. So why do this? Why have nothing to do with someone when it comes to membership in the church? Remove someone from membership in the church. Again, this is assuming they've not repented. This is not, uh, you sin, so you're out. Or, or, hey, you're still struggling with sin, so you're out. That's all of us are in that boat. All of us. This is your continuing in sin after, warn, after lovingly being encouraged, warned, cautioned, turned back from that, follow Jesus. They're not choosing to do that. Why would a church then exclude someone from membership? Well, three reasons. Follow this. One, God says, do this for the good of each person, including that person. Do this for their good. Did you catch verse 5? I'll come back to this uh, slide in a minute. But you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. I wish we had more time. Just, if we were just studying this passage to dive into what that means. But what's crystal clear that I want you to see is the why. So that. What's the purpose? So that. Purpose clause. His, clause, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Which is a reference to the day of judgment before God that we will all face. God is saying this is good for that person's soul for all of eternity. The picture here is the hope that when someone is removed from the church, maybe then they will see the seriousness of their sin and they will turn and again be restored. That's the whole picture. It's all about restoration. Think 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Paul later encourages the same church at Corinth to forgive and to restore someone who at one point had caused much pain in the church and had been excluded from it. And this is the heart of the gospel. It's why 1 Corinthians 5 here in verse 7 mentions Christ, our Passover lamb, being sacrificed for sin. So if you're visiting with us today, uh, maybe you're exploring Christianity, you might not realize what this phrase means, but it's a reference to the gospel, the good news at the heart of Christianity. That though all of us have been created by God, we have all sinned against God. Every single one of us has walked off a spiritual ledge, turned from God's ways to our own ways. And as a result, we deserve, all of us, myself, every single one of us, deserves judgment before a holy God for our sin. 
But the good news of the Bible, the greatest news in all the world, is that God loves us and God has made a way for us to be restored to him. That God sent his son, Jesus, to do what we could not do, to live a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin for which to die, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for sin as a sacrifice for sin. That's the picture here in the Passover lamb. Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for sinners. Then three days later, he rose from the grave in victory over sin so that anyone, anywhere, no matter how far you've gone off that ledge, no matter who you are, what you've done, if you will put your trust in Jesus, God will forgive you of all your sin and restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity. This is the gospel. It's the greatest news in the world. And we invite you to believe it today. Put your trust in Jesus today. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, turn from your sin and yourself. Put your trust in Jesus. And then when you do, doesn't it make sense for the church in your life to continually say, keep turning from sin and keep trusting in following Jesus. That's the whole picture here. So that, go back to it, purpose, so that you might be restored, walk in closeness to Jesus and his church, so you might see the seriousness of your sin and receive the forgiveness of God for the good of each person. Do you see now how church discipline in this way is the most loving thing a church can do? How it's actually unloving? If a church sees someone caught in sin, continuing unrepentant in it, and lets them continue down a destructive path? Do this, God says, for the good of each person. Second, for the good of the church. Did you notice something? Look in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul never actually addresses the person who has committed sexual immorality. Instead, he addresses the church. And he holds them accountable for standing idly by while this man is caught in sin. And God is saying, that's not good. He's confronting the church. Did you hear him in verse 2? He said, you should be mourning over this. And the word there means to mourn over that person's sin as if it's your own. But instead of mourning over sin, they were ignoring it. Not just to the detriment of this man, but to their own detriment. Did you catch the imagery in verse 5 of uh, the leaven? Uh, let me see if I've got it in here. Uh, it's back here. The leaven that was talked about, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. The whole picture here, very clear. One person's sin does not just affect them. It affects the church. We know this, right? Sin in my life doesn't just affect me. My sin affects my marriage. My sin affects my parenting. My sin affects my work. My sin affects all kinds of people around me. My sin doesn't just affect me. And your sin doesn't just affect you. 
Go to Joshua chapter 7 to see the effect of one person's sin on the entire people of God. So do this, God says, for the good of the church. Unrepentant sin left unconfronted spreads unhealth in the church. And it brings dishonor to God. That's the third and ultimate reason for church discipline here. Why do this? For the good of each person, for the good of the church, and for the glory of God. Did you notice, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, when he said, you are arrogant. Later he said, your boasting is not good. Now this, let's think about this, is so different than the way we think. Because we think it's humble and kind not to confront others in their sin. Like that's their business, not mine. So we, in what we would think is humility, just kind of sit back and watch them continue in sin. And the world certainly thinks this way. Mark it down. Whenever we carry out church discipline according to God's word, Whenever we remove someone from the church, people will say, that is arrogant. If you were humble and gracious, you'd welcome them as members of the church. But God says the exact opposite. God says it is arrogance to ignore continual unrepentant sin like it's no big deal. It's the height of pride before me, God says. And it brings dishonor to me. Paul starts the whole passage saying, not even pagans in the world around you would condone what you're condoning in the church. So what's the takeaway from all this? We need a church that will love us enough to lead us away from sin and toward Jesus. And I just want to highlight that word love at the heart of this sentence it's why when I was thinking about it, okay, what can I have people shout out to Solomon as he's walking toward the ledge? Like, stop or turn back. No, oh, I want to choose, like, we love you. That that would be the picture here. That we need to be in relationship with other Christians in a church who love us enough to do this in our lives. And think about the implications of this. What this means is it is not loving for you to come and just sit on a Sunday in a room like this and then move on with your life. You're not loving, being loved the way you need to be loved and you are not loving other Christians the way they need you to love them. Who are you looking out for like this? This is love according to God. It is loving for you to be a meaningful member of a church where you're loving others and being loved by others in these ways. You need this and others need this from you, Christian. And then to anyone in this church who is caught in or continuing unrepentant in sin in ways that are harmful to you, to others, to the church, 
And even for those who have been removed from the church at any point in the past, hear me, us, as an entire church family saying, I, we genuinely love you. Genuinely, sincerely, and want, long to see you restored to Jesus and to the church. That's the goal. We want to see sin seriously, and we want to celebrate grace and restoration seriously. I think of a story represented in our church family. So there was a mom who got pregnant outside of marriage, and the dad wanted to abort the baby. But the mom said no. And she went to a church, not this church. This was actually in a different country. And the church shunned this mom, told her that she wasn't welcome there because of her sin, which is obviously not what the Bible is saying. This, this, this woman was turning from her sin, wanting to follow Jesus. And she was being shunned from the church. Well, she gave birth to a baby boy. She decided to send her little boy to that church, even though she wasn't allowed to attend. And he grew up, and he became a follower of Jesus. And a couple of summers ago, that once little boy, now grown man and brother in Christ, moved to Metro D.C., and he visited NBC. He just so happened to come here for the first time on a Sunday morning when we were at the height of some conflict in the church. And Ken Tucker, one of our elders who led us in prayer here at Tyson's this morning, was sharing with his wife, Judy, about sin and their marriage and God's grace to restore him and them. And this brother said he saw the way this church family didn't condone or gloss over sin, but showed grace and mercy at the same time. And he said he and his wife knew that this was the church family for them. And I share that story because I want you to get the picture. Based on God's word, we pray that both of these realities that this brother observed will be true in this church family. One, we want to be super serious about sin and turning from it because we know the damage it does to us, to others, to the church, and to the honor of our God. And at the same time, we want to be super serious about grace and forgiveness and restoration for fallen, broken, hurting, wounded people because, well, because that's all of us. We are all, every single one of us, we are all just steps away from falling. This is not a sermon for those people. This is a sermon for all of us. We all need a church that loves each other enough to keep us from walking off a ledge. And we need to be members in a church where we are doing this for others and they are doing this for us. That's what God is saying to us. And if or when we find ourselves off the ledge in some way, a church that will come to us, pick us back up, and lead us toward Jesus. In other words, you and I need biblical accountability and discipline. So will you bow your heads with me? 
all across this room and other locations. I, I'm not going to presume for a minute to know how this word lands on every heart, but I know there are some in this room and other locations right now who you've never put your trust in Jesus. You've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus to restore you to relationship with God. And if, if that is you, I want to invite you right now just to do that in your heart to say yes to Jesus, to say, God, I know that I've sinned against you and I deserve judgment before you, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. So forgive me of my sins and restore me to relationship with you today. And by faith, by trust in Jesus and his love for you, he will do that. He will restore you to relationship with him for all of eternity. And then I, I'm, I'm assuming there are some, maybe many, in this gathering today who may have put your trust in Jesus, but you find yourself right now caught in sin. You've been continuing unrepentant in sin. And God and his love for you is speaking to your heart right now, calling you back to himself through his word. And I invite you, if that's you, just to say, yes, God, I want to come back to you. I want to leave this sin behind. Thank you for lovingly pulling me back to you. I guess... What I'm encouraging you to pray is invite the loving discipline of God in your life today. And for all of us to say that, God, we praise you as our Father. We praise you for your love for us as your sons and your daughters. We're so glad to be your children. And so we say what seems countercultural, certainly to the world around us and even to the flesh within us, but we say to you in prayer today, we want your discipline in our lives. We need your discipline in our lives. We want to share in your holiness. So we pray for humility. God, we pray for the humility we need to receive your discipline and the humility we need to reflect your discipline, to be a picture of your good, loving discipline in each other's lives. God, this feels so against the grain of the way we think and the way the world works around us. So we just say, please help us to be a church marked by biblical accountability and discipline. And please help us individually to do all you're calling us to do, to love others and receive love from others in this way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866-8999.
following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And by the way, to remember something implies that you have heard it already, right? To remember something implies that you understand and know of it. He says in 2 Peter 1.19, So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well or, or you do beautifully to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture. Scripture means written word is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And Peter says, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. They were false prophets, they weren't holy, and then there were God's prophets who were holy. They were holy, they were righteous in Christ because they believed in the seed of Abraham who would come and die for their sins on the cross. They believed in the Lamb of God who would take away their sins, the one who would come, and he did come. They believed in the seed of Abraham, the one in whom all the nations will be blessed with the offer and opening of salvation. He says that you remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. Well, what is it that the holy prophets spoke of that they should remember? I think we're going to see in context, he's pointing to the warnings that he's going to speak of here, that people will arise. And I think he's going to say the same thing concerning what the apostles warned us of. Look at here, and we'll look at that back in a minute. Second half of two, he says, And the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The holy prophets, the words spoken beforehand by them. And secondly, the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. You see, the Lord brought forth the word and he gave it to his apostles, his sent ones, and they brought forth the word of God. But what is he talking about here? What does he mean by this commandment of the Lord that we should remember? How can we remember if we don't know what it is? What is he talking about? He says, in the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Well, first of all, we gain some insight by how it's qualified here. The commandment of the Lord and Savior. You see, remember, this letter begins by speaking of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, verse 1. He speaks of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 11. He speaks of the false teachers who have known the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but yet didn't trust in him, chapter 2, verse 20. He concludes the letter in chapter 3, verse 18, that we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God the Son is Lord of all. He is the Lord of all. And see, you need to believe that he's Lord. You need to understand that. You can't get saved unless you believe that, by the way. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. That's where your heart is. From our mouth comes what's in our hearts. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. You believe he's the Lord. 
But not only must you believe that Jesus is God, that he is the Lord, that he is the Lord of the universe, you must also believe that he is the Savior of the world. You see, the name Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh, and Yeshua, Yahweh saves. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. God is the one who saves. And it is Jesus who brings salvation. You see, we are all sinners. And God will judge and punish sinners eternally because he's holy. He's a righteous judge. And there is only one way to be saved from God's holy and righteous wrath and judgment. It is through the Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, God the Son took on human flesh. He lived the perfect life And he went to the cross and bore our sins in his body on the cross. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty and rose from the dead. He is the only Savior. He is the Savior of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Lord and Savior. So Peter is reminding them, stirring them up, that they would remember not only the words spoken by the holy prophets beforehand, we'll look at that in a minute, but the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by his apostles. Do you remember the Great Commission? Turn to Matthew 28. Now, we often apply the Great Commission to ourselves, and that's partially true, but primarily the Great Commission was to the apostles, and you'll see that in a minute. It does apply to us too, but primarily it was to the apostles. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Very end of the book of Matthew. Matthew 28, verse 16. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead and had appeared to many already. Matthew 28, 16. But the eleven disciples, notice what he says, the eleven disciples, now Judas had committed suicide, he was the son of perdition. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, literally in your going, or as you go, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, that's the main verb, make disciples. But then there's two ING words, baptizing and teaching. That's how disciples are made. He says, make disciples baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You never disciple non-believers. You disciple those who have outwardly identified that they've trusted in Jesus Christ. You can teach a non-believer the Word of God for years. What they need is the Gospel. Make disciples, baptizing, affirming the reality that they are truly saved, that they identify with Jesus. And then, notice what he says. He says, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To make disciples, you teach believers to observe and obey all that Jesus did and said, right? It's about Jesus and his word, right? You see, and the apostles brought forth, they were the sent ones, they brought forth his word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul has made it clear that believers have the tremendous blessings. Every blessing is in the heavenlies. Everything there in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he has prayed for them. 
And within that, he moves to chapter 2, revealing what they had been and who they were, dead in their transgressions and sins, but now made alive together with Christ, having been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he begins to share the tremendous reality of how God has brought into the body of Christ Gentiles and how he did that. And then look down in chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Hey, you're not outside but fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. You're believers. You're in God's household. Having been, notice this, built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you're being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God brought forth his word through his son Jesus who brought salvation and his apostles and the prophets brought forth the word to which we are built up on Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. And so back to our passage in 2 Peter 3. So what are the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets? What's the command that we are to remember? What is that? Verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord, Savior, spoken by the apostles. Well, concerning the commandment, it could be referring to the holy commandment delivered to the false apostles back in chapter 2, verse 21, that they rejected. It could be referring to the gospel. Certainly in the context, that's possible. And I can't say for sure, but I believe in light of the entire context of chapters 2 and 3, and what Peter will say in the very next verse, that we need to realize that it has to do with warnings concerning those who would come. Notice verse 3. He says here, instead of, some of your versions say no, but it's really knowing. It's very important to understand. Some of your versions might say knowing in verse 3 of chapter 3. Some say knowing, I-N-G. Some say no. Now, if you know English language, it's amazing. I know because I was terrible in English, but God's gracious. The reality is a participle doesn't stand on its own. I don't say running to the store. I say I was running to the store. You see? And so verse 3 is connected to what he says in verses 1 and 2. So he says that you should remember what the holy prophets spoke beforehand. You should remember the commandment, the Lord and Savior, that was brought forth by the apostles, knowing something that mockers will come. So we need to remember what God has said because something's going to happen. Because something's going to happen. I think that's what's going on here. It's connected. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by our apostles, literally knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Do you see the connection? I'm stirring you up a way of reminding your sincere minds that you would remember what God said beforehand through the holy prophets and what the Lord and Savior spoke through the apostles, knowing first of all, bad guys are coming, and they're going to be mocking God's word. You need to know something. You need to remember something, because bad guys are coming. You know, what's interesting is I think what helps me really understand this is a parallel portion in the book of Jude. Turn up to Jude. It's right before Revelation. Jude verse 17 This really kind of solidifies this idea of what I think he wants us to remember. Jude 17. And notice how Jude is really parallel to 2 Peter. Jude 17. But you, beloved, 
ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by what? The apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And notice what he says, that they were saying to you, in the last days there shall be mockers, following after their own lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. He goes on. You should remember what God said through the apostles. What did he say? In the last days there will be mockers. Well, who said that? That's a quote of Peter, isn't it? That's a quote of verse 3 in our passage, isn't it? We are being called to remember the truth of God, that they're going to be bad guys. Well, when did he speak beforehand through the holy prophets about this? There's a lot of places, but turn back to Deuteronomy 13. Moses, speaking through him, inspired by the Spirit. Moses was called a prophet, by the way. Deuteronomy 13. Where were they warned that someone might come and arise and share bad things? Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, notice the, the similar language, arises among you, and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true. Hey, this guy's got some kind of signs he's doing, right? And it's working, it's coming true. Concerning what he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods to whom you have not known, let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God allows false teachers to show you where your heart's at. If you're in a bad church with bad teachers, guess what? Your heart isn't fully loving the Lord. You love what you get out of that church. Your heart is divided. God is testing. And here, he says, whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, and serve him and cling to him. But that prophet of dreamer and dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way of the Lord your God. He commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. Did you get that? To seduce you. Sounds like it's pretty obvious what he's saying, but it's in the context of seducing them ultimately to follow these things. We need to remember what God said. They're going to arise. There's many other passages. What about the New Testament? What about the commands spoken by our Lord and Savior? We know that Jesus shared in Matthew 17, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Well, what did he speak through his apostles in regards to this? Turn to Acts chapter 20. What did Jesus speak through his apostles and command in regards to those who would come, mockers coming, bad guys coming? What did he share in advance? What should we remember so that we do not get caught up and caught off guard? What should we remember? Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on your guard for yourselves. This is to the Ephesian elders. For yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Very, very important. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, notice this, men will arise. They're going to come up from within, speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering night and day for a period of three years. I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul was concerned 
about threats to your walk with Jesus Christ. That you would be derailed and so subtly be following your flesh, thinking you're following Jesus and not growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. What about 2 Timothy chapter 3? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. Paul's last words here to Timothy, his faithful servant in the faith. But realize this, that in the last days, notice this, we're going to look at last days in a little bit also for our passage, okay? In the last days, difficult times will come. We say, we sure know that, don't we? Well, that's totally true, but he's going to speak about some other difficulties here, more specifically. Four, he's going to explain, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Right there you'd think, man, I could spot this guy a mile away. But notice what he says. Holding to a form of godliness. They're pretending. Although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Again, and he says, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're, hey, they're hearing everything, but they don't come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Janus and Jairus opposed Moses, they're opposing leadership, by the way, so these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as in regards to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also... That of those two came to be. But you, he's speaking to Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystrum, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Praise the Lord.
ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.